This is such a weird, weird movie to talk about. I mentioned way back, two months ago now, um, the idea that there is no there, there's no defined set of rules when it comes to Star Trek fans, right? You know, I've I've heard people blast Star Trek six and two, and I've heard people love Star Trek five and ten. You know, it, it, there are no rules. But the thing that I've noticed as a commonality is, for the most part, there does tend to be a band of average, you know, av average acceptability when it comes to the movies, right? So on the negative 10 to 10 scale here, you know, Star Trek 2 is usually like around here, and Star Trek 3 is usually around here, and Star Trek 1 is usually around here, and you know, so forth and so on, right? Star Trek 9 is the exception to that rule, the only exception to that rule. Because while there are outliers in all these movies, because, you know, there are no rules, like I said, if I were to tally up everyone I've ever talked to about Insurrection, the the band from negative 10 to 10 would basically be, be this. I've heard some people say it is their favorite Star Trek movie. I've heard some people say it is their least favorite, even more so than other movies, uh, like 5 or 10. I've heard some people, I, I mean, I've heard as literally as many people bash this movie as love it. It does seem to be a very much a love or hate it movie. And I think I can explain the biggest reason why that is. It comes down to two people, Rick Berman and Michael Piller. Now, anyone who's familiar with Star Trek is going to look at me weird for associating those two men together. For those of you who aren't aware, uh, and I'm going to be talking about a few TNG things here because they're kind of relevant, I think, to this movie. Uh, I'll be talking about these again when I get to my TNG series rumination, but... I don't even know when the hell that's going to happen, so that's why I'm going to go ahead and just mention this now. And of course, if, if you ever come back from the future to rewatch this, then you know you can see that I put my thoughts down here as well. Michael Piller and Rick Berman are two of the people who basically brought Star Trek into the modern era and helped make it to the success it was. Are arguably two of the strongest people who were responsible for the fact that DS9 and Voyager and the TNG movies actually happened. Whether you consider that a good or a bad thing is, of course, debatable, but there's no denying the impact the men have had, and in my opinion, it was a good impact. It's one of the reasons I tend to be a little more tolerant towards Rick Berman than I am towards, say, Maurice Hurley, who basically did nothing positive at all for the series. Even though Rick Berman is the man who killed Star Trek, we'll be talking about that uh, in a couple weeks here. Rick Berman still also did some good stuff, and it's debatable that he did it either out of flagrant stupidity or misguided belief. We'll talk about that a little bit more later, but suffice it to say, why do these two men have relevance to this movie? Let, let's go ahead and talk about the relevance of Insurrection in particular. Well, what do we have when it comes to Insurrection? We have a cast who knows each other and has worked with each other for over seven years now. They've got great chemistry together. They're actually friends in real life. You know, they really interact well as a family. And you've got a director who, in addition to being one of those cast members, is an extremely talented director and really knows how to pull great performances out of his actors. Now, I've always said there's three major factors that, that determine what kind of performance you see on a screen, whether it's television or movie, doesn't matter. The actor themselves, duh. The director, who gives them the shots and pulls the performance out of them. And the script. Well, we've already got great actors and great directors, so what's the problem with this movie? Now, I will not say Insurrection has a bad script, because I know what bad scripts actually look like, and they are much worse than this. But it does have a very weak script, and it shows 
basically everywhere. We get to see, now. Michael Pillar is the gentleman who wrote this. I, I almost just said episode. Michael Pillar is the gentleman who wrote this movie, um, and of course, it does suffer from episode syndrome. I talked about this in movie one and movie three as well. It feels like an elongated episode. As I mentioned back then, it is an extremely common problem, and blah, blah, blah. You know, writing for television, different from writing for movies, blah, blah, blah. I've already said all this. You know, all of that applies here equally. But Michael Piller is an incredibly talented author. Why would he, a writer that is as good as him and has as great chops as he is, put forth this thing? Well, I don't have actual factual evidence to explain why it is. All I have is the evidence I have looked at and my own conjecture to... to Put the pieces together into a cohesive whole. So what I'm giving you is is my theory based on what I know. Here's what we know. The, the actual script of Insurrection is the fourth or fifth script he actually put out, and it underwent some significant changes throughout that. Ira Stephen Bear himself came in and said, no, this isn't going to work. For those of you who don't know that name, Ira Stephen Bear is basically the guy behind Deep Space Nine. If you've ever heard of, I don't know, the Dominion or the Dominion War... While that was obviously a group effort, most people credit Ira Stephen Bear with the fact that that happened. Talented guy, in other words. And he tends to know his stuff, especially when it comes to continuity and story arcs. So he comes in and says, no, no, no. He was one of the people who told uh, Pillar this wasn't going to work, one of his earlier drafts. I mention that, though, to explain, to give a kid a fact away. What, what do I derive from that fact? That Michael Pillar was struggling with this script. Let's go look, look at another fact. Michael Pillar put forth a script that was originally, we know actually a decent amount about the original script. It was going to be about uh, a big push. Because remember, okay, for a little bit of timeline thing, for those of you who know Star Trek, or even for those of you who don't, this was happening during, Insurrection came out during Season 7 of Deep Space Nine. That's where it's slotted in the overall story arc of Star Trek, okay? That's relevant because the Dominion War was in full, fl uh, you know, full... Uh, full tilt, and they were winding up towards the finale of that. And the Romulans were kind of doing their thing, and the Cardassians were kind of buckling, and the Breen had been brought in, all that fun stuff. I mention this, though, because the original script was going to be a much darker and serious piece, a very political piece, one that was going to look at a situation in which we had uh, Picard and Data on opposite sides of a dilemma. Now, we don't know what that dilemma is, or at least I don't. Maybe, you know, Michael Pillar's written somewhere about what the actual original script was, or maybe someone out there has a copy of it. But suffice to say, there was a dilemma, and it had to do with the Romulan Star Empire. Now, again, they were our allies at this point in time, but, you know, that, that that's not saying much. Basically, it's like, okay, mutual enemies kind of a situation, right? Especially given that the Romulan Empire was so pro-Dominion prior to uh, In the Pale Moonlight. Cough, cough. So... There was going to be this big dilemma with that, and Data was going to be on the side of trying to basically make a deal with the devil. Go ahead and ally in a way with the Romulan Empire that was ethically and morally abhorrent, and Picard was going to oppose him, and the two were actually going to end up fighting each other in the end, literally. And uh, that was going to end with Data's just uh, deactivation, although at, at the pinnacle climax he would be reactivated to make the right choice, blah, 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 you know, that kind of stuff. Um... Now, maybe it's just me, but when I was reading that, I was getting some really serious flashbacks from an episode of DS9 that came out about 11 episodes or 10 episodes, something like that. It was pretty recent after Insurrection came out. Uh, Inter Arma Inim Silent Legus is the name of that episode. 
in times of war the law falls silent uh, that's a rough translation it can be, it can be debated how that's translated but the point is um that's an episode about bashir and admiral ross ending up on opposite sides of a debate with regards to the romulan empire and uh making a deal with the devil so to speak in this case section 31 with regards to uh, manipulating the empire to go, and in the end they decide to to work with their uh, guts and move with their ethics, and they find out that that was planned for, and you kind of see how they line up a little bit. Now I'm not saying that episode tore from this plot. I'm saying, well, the odds of it being inspired by the, that original script are really high, but also to explain a point. That original plot that Pillar put forth, that was the original draft, which I just like to say I think that would be awesome and, and also would fit the title of Insurrection better. That original plot was canned. We don't know by whom, but it was said it was too political and too dark. Now, for those of you who don't know Michael Pillar's work, he's really good at writing very dark, very serious character pieces. Would you like me to show my work? Okay, he helped write Best of Both Worlds. So, he was told he can't do that kind of a dark work and he can't do that kind of a political work. So he came up with a second draft, which was silly. It was kind of dumb sounding, actually. This is the one Ira Stephen Bear shot down. It had to do with the Fountain of Youth and the Romulans and still contained elements of the previous script and the final script we actually got for Insurrection. And Ira Stephen Bear had come out and said, no, 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 dude, this isn't going to work. So then they reworked it again into what we have for Insurrection. Now... Michael Piller is one of the only writers I've ever heard who's spoken in favor of the box. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, well, let's just say that the very last point I have in this entire film, or in this entire video, the one you're watching right now, is going to be talking about the box, okay? So I'm going to leave my thoughts on that for then. But Michael Piller decided to champion the idea of the box. Okay, we can't do a dark work. We can't do a serious work. We can't do a political work. Let's make something lighthearted and fun. The man whose greatest writing talents is doing dark, serious character pieces try to do something lighthearted and fun. And it was all because someone... <clears throat> Rick Berman. That's my theory. That, that's the theory. I, we know someone pushed down and said, don't do this. We know he was kind of told, do a lighthearted piece after first contact. Do something within the box. It's my theory that was Rick Berman because that makes a lot of sense, especially since Rick Berman is basically the champion of the box and a lot of other bad writing things, but I don't want to get into that. Now, <laughs> I also got a comment on something. The original script was, was decried as being too political, so Michael Piller instead decided to do a, a how was that episode again, to do a movie about forced relocation, because that's not political at all, is it? <laughs> I don't even know what to say about that. This is a good time to bring up something. Uh, I'm not going to talk about the political ramifications of forced relocation, okay? I feel like doing so would violate my own rule. Uh, for those of you who don't know or haven't watched me for some strange reason, I basically have a rule that says no certain topics on my streamer show. Now, you might be like, well, what what is defined as that? I, I There's no set definition. The line is like this. It's not like one line. But one of those things is... Uh, Topics that engender arguments rather than discussion. For example, if someone came onto my show and was like, what do you think about abortion? I would say no. <laughs> Just to give you one example. I do have thoughts on the matter, 
but I'm not sharing those on my show, and I'd rather other people not discuss them on my channel or whatnot. Now, you can if you want to. I'm not going to shut you down unless you've crossed the line. If you decide to go ahead and start arguing with each other to the point where you start insulting my viewers, uh, then you're getting banned, or at the very least, deleted, one of the two. Just a fair warning. I know forced relocation is a very sensitive topic. I get that. I understand how bad it can and has been. I understand what cultural assimilation means and how it can and has been applied, okay? You don't need to inform me of these kind of things, right? All I'm going to say is that we can probably understand the very concept of forced relocation is generally a bad thing. And honestly, I don't think we actually need to discuss anything more here on a Star Trek show about a movie that's not actually that great. <laughs> Which brings me to my overall opinion. Uh, you asked, well, nobody asked, but, you know, negative 10 to 10, where does insurrection lie? Right about here, at the 1. At, you know, as in 1 positive. Just barely net positive. This is the other way this ties into the box thing. Let me just loop that around here. When I watched this in the theaters, it was enjoyable. Uh, when I watched this, when it came out on VHS, it was like, okay. And then I didn't rewatch it until I saw it with my sister last year. That makes the third viewing. That means the viewing I'm watching right now, or rather the one I just did a few hours ago, was my fourth viewing of this movie ever. When I watched it with my sister, it was alright, but kind of weird. And it just struck me as wrong. And then I watched it with full analysis mode on for the rumination. And then my opinion of the movie plummeted. And I think that pretty much summarizes my thoughts on that in a nutshell. But let's move on. So let's add one other thing. Uh, there were a couple of cut scenes, one of which include Armin Shimmerman, a.k.a. Quark, which is a weird one that it was present at all, and I'm not even going to discuss it because it makes so little sense that I don't even know what to say about it, but moving on. There is a... Oh, excuse me. There is a cut line, though, that I feel would have added a lot, and I do mean a lot, to Insurrection. It's about the Sona, about how the Sona no longer have the ability to procreate. Now, I know a lot of you are like, well, of course they don't have the ability. No, that's actually not in the movie. At no point in time is that actually said, so whether that's canon or not is debatable. Now, it was originally supposed to be in the movie, so I think we can consider that, and I will be considering that into my equations, but I think it should have been added back in because it adds a lot of insight into a lot of things they do, like, for example, their reliance on slave labor. Now, reality check. Slavery is one of the worst things, in my personal opinion. It's, it's like towards the bottom of the morality scale. So screw the Sona. But it does help to explain why they, again, rely, need slave labor to continue to function because they literally cannot continue to exist as a species. They are literally dying out. And that brings me to the real problem with, the, like, I think the single biggest problem with this movie as a whole. What we have is a fake dilemma. Let me explain what I mean by this. Uh... I forget the name of it, but there's a dilemma that's like the train dilemma. In other words, do you rescue the person or do you die or whatever like that? It doesn't matter. The point is to test your ethical uh, perspective on something, right? The problem is when you look at that kind of a dilemma, you can't construct it logically. In other words, all that's going to happen is you're going to find different ways logically based on real-life scenarios to find a way around it. 
real-life dilemmas tend to happen as a result of a lot of complicated things, and writing such a thing actually is very difficult. And someone who's going to write something specifically going out to write a dilemma is not interested in writing that huge, complicated situation most of the time. They just want to say, here's your dilemma pick, right? That is what I usually refer to as a fake dilemma. In other words, it's a dilemma that only exists because the writers tell us it do. There are plenty... It does, excuse me, bad grammar. Tell us it does. Because there's too many ways around it. There's too many ways that it's not actually a dilemma. It doesn't actually make logical sense when you sit down and wonder. This whole thing with the Baku and the forced relocation is a fake dilemma for many reasons, not the least of which being the obvious one that I just listed. The Sona are dying out. Any situation in which they are not allowed to continue to be on the planet or allowed to get this situation means they're going to die. They're the whole species, not just those individual people. Which I mention that because most people acknowledge that people die, but most people also acknowledge that as species dying is generally considered a bad thing. Uh, unless you're Jonathan Archer, of course. <clears throat> now, and, and admittedly, Phlox gets some of the credit there as well. But anyways, point being, next thing we have to stare at is the exact same situation with the Baku. 600 people is not a viable gene pool. How many children do we see amongst the Baku? A handful? A dozen? They're not going to really perpetuate as a species unless their lives are somehow extended by the planet, of course. But you see the problem that's already arisen here. I'll talk a little bit more about this later, but there are a lot of holes overall in this dilemma that Pillar wanted to create. And I think the biggest problem was the fact that Pillar wanted to create this dilemma, which I don't really think was necessary at all, to be completely blunt. And... He didn't actually do anything with it, although, I, I again, I blame the box and Rick Berman on that one. And finally, well, there's no way to get around this. Screw the Baku, okay? Now, this is my opinion, of course. But seriously, screw the Baku. But I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Let's just talk about the base problems with the Baku. The tagline for this movie actually calls the planet Paradise. And the whole thing is about how it's Paradise. Now, I've been to the uh, uh, Donner Pass area where they filmed this. And I'll have to admit, it's incredibly gorgeous, you know, having been there in person, in addition to doing the movie. So yeah, okay, it's very pretty. That's great. Um, what they have is not realistic in any sense of the word. It is literally magic. I'm debating if I want to actually talk about this now or later. <laughs> Let's just go ahead and talk about it now. I've worked on a farm before, okay? Uh, I'm actually probably sure a lot of you have too. I mean, any, especially anybody in my age range because it was actually a lot more common to have family members and whatnot who lived on a farm that they lived on for decades, a few decades ago. So, yeah, I've worked on a farm before. It's hard, tiring, backbreaking work, usually sun to sun, you know, sunrise to sunset. Now, I'm not complaining. It was actually some great work, and I got, uh, it was great hanging out with my grandparents and whatnot, but the point is, that's what the reality is of living at that level of technology. Okay? The whole point of the Baku is they have rejected technology, which I'll talk about later. Um, and despite that, they have time for leisure and time to work on their crafts and time to enjoy life and read books and all that fun stuff. And all I could think of is, 
where are you getting the resources for your surprisingly clean and well-designed village, which literally looks like pixies have run through it with wands saying, be clean, be clean. And they have like some kind of well of, of resources that just comes up and like a replicator or something like that that just goes, ah, here's, here's some fresh uh, stone from the quarry that doesn't exist. And this is ignoring the fact that these people have a massive dam, I remind you. You remember that? Later in the movie, they go, you know, we have rejected technology, except for that massive dam over there. How did they build that? Now, of course, I know what you're going to say. Well, they built all this with technology, and then they rejected it. That just makes them freaking hypocrites. But again, I'll get to the technology thing later. I, I will. The, pro the problem I'm coming up with here is no matter how I think about logically, what we're staring at is people who are just magic. In all honesty, and I mean this sincerely, it would actually have made more sense if magic was basically the answer. If there was some energy being that was regenerating them and the terrain and giving them these resources, that would have actually made more sense than the absolute lack of explanation that we get. However, we do have an implied explanation, and that's my problem with it. But I'll get to that later, too. Um... So let's let's start talking about the movie proper. Um, so they build a duck blind for thirty feet from the town. How do they build into a rock face? How do they without without anyone noticing? Again, thirty feet from the town. That might be an over exaggeration. Actually, it's it's right there, and we have a pretty good shot of how close it is because we see people in it, so we know the sense of scale. So I mean, it's, it's how do they do that? Okay, okay, Federation engineering team. Okay, sure. Um, why do they go to all that effort for a week of observation? Seriously, even assuming... Now, you'd be like, well, the week was just the cover story. No, they were actually going to observe for a week, get the, get the data they needed to build the hollow ship, and have them beamed up and off. If data hadn't intervened, basically by the time the movie got going, you know, maybe like 10, 20 minutes into the movie, as as in a few days after when data went nuts, they probably would have already relocated them, and they would have shut down the duck blind. So, um, it's still a weak usage on a planet that's about to be irradiated for centuries. Uh, eh? <laughs> but the thing is, at the same time, I think that's very in keeping with, with Federation policy. We have this massive war against the Dominion, which we are actively struggling against. And we have this massive, uh, we have taken massive losses from the recent Borg incursion and blah, 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 blah. And we're still reeling from the loss of the Klingons and all the other things that have been happening. And we need to pour our resources and efforts into making a perfect cloaked duck blind. With cloaked suits, they have suits that have perfect cloaks on them. What? <laughs> and they use that here? Now, believe it or not, all of this can be hand-waved by something that was also in the original script. I mean the original script. That didn't actually make it to this version. The original script, Admiral Dougherty, was Section 31. You kind of see how the pieces line up there, don't you? I bet you could probably, I bet you're probably pausing the video right now and just being like, oh my god, because so much of Admiral Dougherty's actions make sense if you assume he was always Section 31. And again, that was the original intent. But moving on. So, so let's talk about the other aspect of the false dilemma. Fake dilemma. The healing properties of the rings that they're going to take and distribute to all the poor little orphans of the Federation. 
Now, my tone is disparaging because, no. What we have here are bandits and thugs who have actively allied with the Dominion and... and, and And, okay, if you haven't read the, I, I keep saying this with the TNG movies, if you haven't read the Insurrection book, I actually recommend it. It's really good. I, I really recommend it. It adds a lot of insight. It really goes into Golna and Rafu's characters a lot and really helps flesh them out. It really helps flesh out Dougherty. And a lot of the structure of the book makes more sense than the movie does. One thing that's in the books is the Sona never had any intention whatsoever of giving this technology to the Federation. Now, that's established in the book, but in the movie, everyone keeps acting like that's what's going to happen, and yet, that doesn't make any sense at all. The more I think about it, the more I was watching this movie, the more I was like, you're trusting drug dealers and slavers who are in an isolated area with the fact that you have to leave to a certain distance just to be able to communicate with the outside realm to keep their bargain with an organization that's in the middle of a war with a massively overpowered enemy whom they're allied with. You really expect that. Moving on. Oh, right. I was going to... Okay, so this is why this is a fake dilemma, though. The dilemma is all about, you know, oh, oh my gosh, we must... How do we, you know... How do we go forward and live with ourselves? I mean, relocating 600 people is worth the lives of billions, right? Well, yeah, of course it is, by, by cold calculus. If you just fling ethics and morality out the window, yes, that's a, that's a cheap bargain, uh, as uh, Garrick would put it. Problem is, it's a fake dilemma because that's not what would happen, like I just said. Even ignoring the book, all logic says these people will just keep this technology for themselves, which means you're trading the lives of 600 people for nothing! on. So, Data, right. Data goes out of his way. They, they, Brent Spiner insisted on something here in Insurrection, and this actually comes forward even more in Nemesis, but I'll get to that. Brent Spiner insisted that they get rid of his emotion chip for this movie. It shows, too. They have a single one-off line about how he didn't have his emotion chip, and they do that to explain why he's acting like the old Data rather than the new Data. I don't have a nice way to say this. It really shows that Brent Spiner... Brent Spiner himself said that he didn't have a handle on his character anymore. He had no idea how to perform his character anymore. And it shows. Data's performance in this movie is lackluster. If I could be blunt, it really strikes me as Data from season one... Or, well, not season one, but like season two or three of TNG. In other words, the still developing, still has no idea what's going on Data. Remember the Data from Data's day? That's kind of, I know that's like season three or four, but that's the Data I'm reminded of here. The data who hasn't had a chance to develop. The data who has not had experiences. The data who has not gone through first contact, for example, which was a pretty big character development moment for him. Granted, you could say some of that was based on the chip, but that doesn't change the fact that his character adapted and grew. I, I've always said that first contact was the one TNG movie where data actually made a logical and, and well-reasoned and good step forward as far as, as being a character. And yet in this movie, it feels like he takes 17 steps backwards. The other problem, though, here was Pillar went on record saying he had no idea how to write data, so he just wrote them like he always did, back in the old days. So, whatever. So, one thing I do like is it cuts to the Enterprise, and the ship is very busy, and I like that. That's actually really good. It makes perfect sense that the flagship of the fleet would be very, very busy. Why? Well, 
Some people have always wondered why is it the Enterprise E, a frickin' sovereign ship, has been kept away from the fighting of the Dominion War. The answer, I feel, has always been Jean-Luc Picard. Not that I don't think he would fight, quite the contrary, I think he would be a great F officer, and he is well known as being an excellent tactician and strategist. The problem is, he is also probably the best diplomat in the whole Federation at this point now that Sarek has passed on. So, the idea that the Enterprise would be cleaning up the brush fires of the rest of the Federation and trying to shore up uh, diplomatic attachments and trying to get allies and that kind of thing actually makes a lot of sense. It is very logical to send your best diplomacy ship to go fix everything else while the actual, you know, while the ships who are capable of fighting are up here at the front. It, I like that. It is also probably the best explanation I've ever heard for why we never saw Picard or anybody else in, in the Dominion War. Because they were fighting in the Dominion War. They were just doing the behind-the-scenes stuff, which arguably is more important than the actual fighting, depending on how you perspect that. One other thing I like, and I just feel like mentioning this, because I already said it again. Uh, <laughs> I just feel like mentioning this again. I'm sorry, I'm really tired. Uh, because, but I already said this. There's really good chemistry in the cast. I really like how they interact with each other. It's very natural, it flows wonderfully, and it very much invokes that feeling of family. So Worf shows up. This is great. <laughs> Worf shows up from Deep Space Nine, and he starts to explain why he's here. And this is beautiful. <laughs> Worf's audio fades into the background so we can hear more about the plot. So we don't actually hear Worf's explanation for why he's here. And then Picard cuts him off and says, stay with us. It's literally the most hand-wavy explanation I've ever seen of, of getting a character onto onto. You know, onto the movie. At least his inclusion in First Contact made a whole lot of logical sense. You know, he was on the Defiant fighting the Borg, and then the Enterprise came in and saved him from the Defiant from fighting the Borg. Here he's just, hi, I'm here. Okay! And then Worf's in the movie. <laughs> it, it amuses me, even though it actually makes no logical sense. So, whatever. Um, so then there's F. Murray, F. Murray Abraham. Now, he's not exactly my favorite actor, but he's a good actor, and he does some good stuff. And he is thoroughly wasted in this movie. There, are, There's basically, I'd say, two, maybe three scenes I've seen him in where he really gets to show his chops. And they're not... I'll go and tell you the scenes now. One is when he has his big speech to Admiral Dougherty, like, well over halfway into the movie. And the other is even after that when he goes ahead and coldly yet calmly assigns, uh, assures that people will die simply by order. And when he's reminded of the fact that they will die, he's always, oh, thank you for reminding me. The way he says that is perfectly chilling and really shows that Rafu, the character, has gone mad, completely mad in his approach. Not, you know, mad as in a hatter, but mad as in lost all perspective, lost the ability to think rationally, that kind of a thing. So I think he does a good job of it a couple of times, but God, such a waste. Anyways, moving on. So one of the things that was pushed down from the studio, I don't know if this came from Rick Berman, was they wanted to sex up the movie more. More sex and violence was what was, what was requested. <laughs> so they wanted uh, a romance story between Picard and uh, and uh, I actually don't remember her name and Troy and Riker and they wanted more violence which is why there's a lot of big flashy action scenes and this movie has arguably more combat in it than any other Star Trek movie uh, not counting the new, recent two ones I'm not sure about that one so I mention this, though, because that actually doesn't bother me too much. The inclusion of sexiness into Star Trek is something that is just kind of, uh, okay, and? 
As long as you're not doing it at the detriment of the movie or the episode, I don't care. And it's worth noting that, and there's no way getting around this, Star Trek has been associated with sexy for a long time. Ever since the original series, actually. And I mean for males and females both, by the way. There are a lot of women who were really interested in Spock back in the day. And for good reason. And Shatner as well, and so forth and so on. Um, so that doesn't bother me as long as it doesn't detract from the film. But I think it does in this case in one aspect. I like Troy and Riker pushing closer together. I think that was actually a good move. Frankly, I think they should have done that in Season 7 instead of pushing her and Worf together. But I'll talk about that in 17 years when I finally start talking about TNG. But then Picard gets together with random woman whose name I don't remember and frankly don't care enough to look up. Because she's the romance of the week. Now I'll be talking about this over on Voyager eventually. But here's the problem with the romance of the week in a brief nutshell. It's stupid. We know it's going to end. It means nothing. It's literally the definition of a fling. In some cases, based on how long the episode or movie lasts, it's a fling that lasts a couple of days. Most people wouldn't even qualify that as dating. So, even by real-world standards, that is completely meaningless. And it doesn't usually actually do anything with the characters, because that's the catch. If you're going to do a romance thing, and ironically, Voyager actually does this right in one episode, but if you're going to do a one-off romance do something with it. Make it matter to the characters. Make it show a sign of them, or show a sight of them, excuse me, that actually helps flesh them out, or shows what they're going through, or helps develop where the story overall is going through, or helps continue with the arc of where this pl- the episode, or the, the, the series is going. You know, do something with it. Don't just have someone show up and be like, ah, doughy eyes, and then move on as if it never happened. That's dumb. It's a waste of air. It is the definition of grind. Remember I talked about that before? No? Well, that's because I talked about that on my Voyager episode, and statistically speaking, if you're watching this, you are not one of those people. Uh, well, I guess that's a lie. Statistically speaking, if you're watching this, you are one of those people, because all those people are probably watching these, but the other 90% of you have not watched my Voyager stuff. So to define what I mean by this, grind, definition, any repetitive action you do not enjoy. Hence why I, don't, why I distinct between leveling and grind in RPGs, for example. Leveling can be enjoyable. Grind is, by definition, unenjoyable. Grind also applies to television, books, and movies equally. Why? Because in those cases, it is the exact same thing except applied differently. Because you aren't doing anything. All that's happening is your time is being wasted. Grind equals padding when it comes to movies and episodes, okay? And books. So if you have a section that is literally just padding, it's there to flesh out, it's it's there to push out your airtime and not actually do anything with it, that's padding, a.k.a. grind, a.k.a. get this out of my freaking show and or movie, because it's dumb, pointless, wasteful, stupid. Now, I will, however, add that padding by definition, just like grind, is is, is up to interpretation. What one person finds grindy, the other person may find enjoyable, Right? So it's not like you can just get rid of all grind because some people actually enjoy that, right? You can't get rid of all padding because some people enjoy that padding. However, there is absolutely no denying that there is an attitude difference when it comes to the writers involved. And the romance thing is prob- the romance subplot is probably one of the most egregious circumstances egregious um, circumstances in which that is applied. In short, most writers, when they do the one-off romance, are doing it to be lazy. They need more airtime, and they're told to sex things up, so here. Here's a love interest. Enjoy. And then it goes away. They are doing it with the deliberate intention of adding padding. Rather than actually, again, 
putting any work or effort into it. This is no exception. Woman whose name doesn't matter adds nothing to this movie. If you ejected her entirely from this movie, nothing would change thematically, plot-wise, story-wise, character-wise, setting-wise. Nothing. Nothing would change at all. And that's the point. If you eject Troy and Riker, would anything change? Debatable. Because the Troy and Riker thing does show some nice character moments and does actually have an impact on the long-term setting since they do, do actually end up together, as you know, they probably should have back in Season 7, like I mentioned. So that's the key difference between the two, I think. The Troy and Riker thing, natural progression of character development and actually has an impact on the setting. Picard and Random Woman means nothing. Now, I keep, I keep drilling this point in because I want to express how stupid this is because they had a way to make this work perfectly. And the, it was the exact same thing they did with Troy and Riker. And the only theory I can put forth as to why they didn't is because it's the same thing they did with Troy and Riker. Beverly. Beverly Crusher. They have hinted at romantic connections between Picard and Beverly since season one of TNG. And the two actors have amazing chemistry together and have really shown their chops in a lot of episodes where, they ha where they're acting off of each other. Why not have her be the love interest? Why not have those two grow together? For God's sakes, in an alternate future, they do end up actually marrying and then divorcing. <laughs> We're not sure about why the divorce happened, but uh, we can guess. <laughs> but seriously, why not make it her? Now, this goes to something I've talked about a lot, and I've actually discussed this on my stream a bit, for, so forgive me for the repetition. I've often felt that they, that TNG should have been more of an uh, ensemble show than it was, because they had all the makings of it. They had a great cast. The cast were good actors. They worked well with each other. Why not give all of them a nice you know, sharing of the pie, so to speak? Instead, what we got was everyone got a little bit of focus... And Well, okay, everyone got a little bit of focus, and then a few characters got a medium amount of focus, and then, you know, Picard and Data basically got the most amount of focus right here. And that's what it ended up being. But if, in my opinion, of all those characters, Beverly Crusher, you know, Dr. Crusher, was the bottom of that list. She was the one who got the least development across the entire show. And it's a shame because Gates McFadden is, A, an amazing actress. She's a theatrical actress, so she really knows how to do her stuff with regard to emoting and whatnot. B, in character, presents a very interesting and very awesome character who basically tends to be... I don't even know how to explain her. I mean, I don't want to get too much into TNG stuff, but she is a combination of very morally and ethically bound, and at the same time is very much a doctor, and yet she's extremely competent and disciplined and knows how to triage and I don't just mean in a medical situation, I mean like in general. She understands the concept of the greater good and the sacrifices of the few, blah, 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 blah. You have what the makings of a great character there and you don't do anything with it. I'm reminded of Harry Kim all of a sudden. Maybe that's why they made Harry Kim. They were like, well, this worked with her. Let's do this again. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little ranty. The point is, making it Crusher here on this planet with Picard would have made a lot more sense. I feel like the two actors would have really bounced off each other a lot better than Picard and Nameless Chick, and I think it would have been a lot more interesting for the overall setting approach. And frankly, and I don't mean to sound this as a shipper, but I would have found that more enjoyable and more satisfying because it is a natural character development for Picard and for Beverly. Whatever. <sighs> so... This is a weird thing to talk about. 
they have to have an action sequence in the first act. So they have uh, Data's shuttle be like, pew, pew. And Data's shuttle ends up fighting with Picard's shuttle shortly thereafter. Now here's the weird thing. Michael Pillar is actually pretty good at not leaning on Technobabble. Now what is, I've talked about Technobabble so much that I feel like I'm repeating myself every time I do. But to suffice, to summarize, Technobabble is meaningless drivel. That's basically the definition of Technobabble. Most people agree Technobabble can be applied correctly or incorrectly. And the difference between the two is actually finer than you'd think. It's, it's really hard to define. But it boils down to how you apply it. Technobabble to explain how you come to a solution. Okay. Technobabble is the solution. Eh. It's especially bad in some cases. I talked about this in Voyager. Where you have a Technobabble problem. In other words, meaningless nonsense is happening. So we'll do meaningless nonsense. And then the problem goes away. That's like the definition of pointless. <laughs> you have, it's like two kids in, in, the, in the playground at school, right? And one of them says, oh my god, the sun's exploding! And the other guy's guy, it's okay, because we can rebuild the sun! You know, there's no logic or, or connection or significance or thought that's actually put into it. It's literally just blah. And if you, if you replaced all the technobabble with blah, just the word blah, it would make the exact amount of main, same amount of sense. And that's the bad application of technobabble. I think Michael B Pillar has always been good at doing a better application of Technobabble, and he does this several times in this movie, and this is the first time. See, what he does is he comes up with a actual solution to the problem. Now, I've talked about this before. Um, in... Oh, shoot, I suddenly can't remember. In one of the earlier Star Trek films, I can't remember my example I was going to give. I am so tired. Um... The main characters come up with a solution that to a problem that is a literal outthink your outthink your opponent thing. Use the use the problems that are facing you right now and try to think your way around it. Outthink them, outsmart them, win, right? To use the ex opposite example, because I can remember this immediately in Generations, Star Trek Seven. When <laughs> When the Enterprise D, a galaxy-class cruiser, is faced with a pile o' junk shuttle, basically of the of the uh, the bird of prey, which I, which I, it still blows me away how stupid that is. Their solution to the situation was to out technobabble them. That's not out thinking. That's not thinking your way out of the problem. That's smearing grease on the lens and hoping nobody notices. That is quantum, in a nutshell. Michael Pillar usually does the opposite thing. He will use Technobabble to explain how he reaches a solution. For example, in this, the solution is we need to deactivate data with Technobabble. Doesn't matter what it is. It's Technobabble, okay? We can deactivate it, but it has a short range because, of course it does. I mean, that makes a degree of sense, actually. So what's the solution? The solution is to start singing. This actually makes surprisingly amount of sense. Now, whether you enjoy that particular song, I admittedly enjoy the British Tar, so... Yeah, whatever. But whether you enjoy that song or not, there's no denying that that scene actually makes a lot of sense because it is logically thinking your way through a problem. We have data. He is functioning. His memory is at least intact to some extent or another, but he is obviously not responding to it as he should. So his higher brain functions are gone to some extent or another. We need to access his lower brain functions. I'm using people terms because technobabble. Um, so why don't we do something that we know he was doing just before he left? try to trigger those memories, trigger his reaction to that, and force him into that kind of a logical loop so that he starts paying more attention to that rather than his action of defend the planet. 
That's thinking your way through a situation. And it's worth noting that the moment they actually grab onto his ship, you know, it, it stops working. Because of course it stops working. That makes perfect logical sense. And I like that. That's Pillars writing in a nutshell. Now, of course, then they have to technobabble the things together and technobabble him off. But like I said, that's good apl application of technobabble because it implied thinking. It implied actually thinking your way out of the situation. Now, okay, yeah, here we go. Here's the Baku. Here's the Baku. I'm, I'm sorry. Everyone, I'm very sorry. I'm probably going to start ranting because this pisses me off. I could deal with the Baku being magic. I could. As I said before, if you literally say that the rings around the panic and their metaphasic radiation, which means that they can go into the, uh, the corona of a star, um, it, it just, like, regenerates the land in a, in a similar way to... If anybody watched my Primus campaign, I, I picture this place as being like Visayan LaSalle. In other words, the land literally regenerates and literally is kept cohesed because of literal magical energy that's being pumped into it constantly, right? It's The energy is being adhered to a uh, a pattern constantly. So if anything's taken away from it, more energy just comes in and refills the pattern. Hence, literally infinite resources, right? And a, a society that has lots of usage of, of stone and metal and what, whatnot, and has only discovered surface mining because they only need to. All their resources are constantly replenished, right? Makes sense. Um, if I could be so bold, I'm speaking of my own writing here. So that would actually made a lot more sense, but so I could tolerate the Baku and their magic, if not for their frickin' attitudes. Their goddamn superiority complex. We believe that if you use a machine to do the work of a man, you take something away from the man. It is worth noting that if you analyze that sentence, it means nothing. I'm dead serious. It can be applied equally to a trillion different... Okay, I'm exaggerating. Dozens upon dozens of different uh, scenarios that mean the exact same thing, aka nothing, because the phrase itself means nothing. What do you take away from the man? Something? Okay, you, you never define it in the entire movie. Okay, sure. Um, what do you define as technology? Or a machine? Because you have machines in your village. You have technology in your village. This is where that technology thing comes up, and this is what's going to piss me off. Okay, so let me get into this really bluntly. Let me present the less ranty side of the argument first. I understand the desire for a simpler life. I do. I'm one of those people who really loves re-watching the first 30 minutes of Fellowship of the Ring, the, the extended edition. Why? Because it shows the Shire. Gorgeous, beautiful, grass terrain, simple people living simple lives of farming and brewing and crafting. I love it. I would love to live that kind of a life. But at no point in time does that bother to show anything other than how hard of a work that is. And I do not look at that and think, oh, that would be so much easier. No, that would be a lot harder of a life than I live right now. In fact, to be blunt, I don't think I'm physically capable of living that life right now with the way my health is and the various pains I have and my age. I would probably literally not function in that kind of a life because it is a hard life. It requires a lot of hard work in order to earn that simplicity. Because some people tend to forget that what technology and machines tend to do is remove the amount of labor hours required to accomplish a task. What takes a guy, you know, insert however many hours here to cut down a tree, takes the machines, insert however many seconds to do. Right? That's 
It's also worth noting that the definition of technology can be best described as the application of human innovation, aka, I don't even have anything appropriate here. If I went outside right now and picked up a stick from the yard, congratulations, I have technology in my hands right now. So, I'm sorry, I'm getting back, I'm getting too much into the ranty thing. Let's go back to the positive thing. Let's get back to the positive thing. So I understand the desire for a simpler life. I do. And I get that's what Mike Rapilla was going for, the, the, the fake, you know, pseudo Lord of the Rings, ah, oh, Shire thing. Okay, I get that. The problem, the, 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 the second problem, the, I, I can't talk about this without ranting. Okay, I'm just going to rant. So I understand that. Now let's rant. First of all, the superiority thing. Um, the moment you act superior to anyone else is the moment I punch you in the face. And I like to say it that way because screw you. Classism is one of the things I have argued against, against most basically my entire life. And I call it classism because I think that's the most general term that applies to that. Whether it's factionalism or nationalism or racism or sexism or whatever, it's all basically aspects of the same thing. Classism, aka, I'm better than you. It's not about segregation. Segregation's a different thing, although the two tend to uh, correlate for obvious reasons. Classism is all about superiority. It's about saying, I am better than you because, insert arbitrary reason here as opposed to, you know, anything that makes sense. Now, that is my opinion. So I freely admit that it is my opinion. However, when someone acts so obviously, pompously, arrogantly, self-proclaiming, self-righteous, it pisses me off. It doesn't matter how they apply it. It also kind of burgeons within me a desire to prove them wrong rather than just punch them. For example, the Baku. We believe that when you build a machine to take away the work of a man, you take away something from a man. Okay, why don't you just carry the water to feed your crops in your hands then? Because that would be not using a machine. See, the problem with the anti-technology thing is that it it's nonsensical to begin with, first of all. Um, and even ignoring the fact that I disagree with it, obviously, as I sit here with technology on my face talking to you through technology that you are receiving through technology. The fact is you have to make an arbitrary definition of what you think is acceptable and isn't. Now, okay, on the face of it, there's nothing wrong with that. Really, there isn't. If you feel that living a lifestyle without ABC is okay with acceptance towards DEF, that's fine. That's your, that's your choice, that's your decision, that's your definition, and there's nothing wrong with that. The moment you start considering yourself superior to me because I use DEF, screw you. You have just crossed the line and lose all rights to anything. And that's what the Baku do. So they have their defined line. They're willing to use this type of technology here and this type of technology there. And they're not willing to use, you know, whatever other forms of technology. Okay, fine. That is acceptable. If it wasn't for the fact that they were constantly smearing other people in the face with it, ah. No, okay, I say constantly. That is actually not true. They only do that in, like, two scenes. But both of those scenes, the smug alert, just le It's so smug that it leaps through the, through the frickin' ceiling. <laughs> and it bothered me so much I had to pause the movie for a second. Now, maybe I'm the only one who's so, so pissed off about this, because, like I said, classism pisses me off. But, God, guys, really? But let's go ahead and talk about one other thing about the anti-technology debate, okay?
The problem the Baku present is the same problem I hear from people who stupidly present the anti-technology debate. And I want to put it that way. Again, if you want to live within this definition of technology, that's fine. But what anti-technologists tend to say is that technology is bad. And that's dumb, because technology is not bad. Technology is not good. Technology is a tool, by definition. The only thing that are good and bad are people. The Baku themselves practically say this outright, even though they're, as they're clinging to their self-righteous philosophy, they talk about how, on our world, weapons are created of mass destruction that could destroy ourselves. Yeah. So, people did bad things because they were bad people. That, that's what I'm hearing here. And you decided that the source of the problem was the technology. Okay. Um, so as I've already explained, that's fundamentally provably wrong. But let's go ahead and look at your second part of your argument, which because I can already hear the counter argument. Well, technology enables people to be bad people. Now, I admittedly disagree with that. As I've said before, power does not corrupt. Power enables so a bad person at their core who is more like who is given the ability to do bad things is probably going to do more bad things than they would otherwise you might think they're a good person but they're yeah, you see how that works right that is admittedly my opinion on the human thing the human uh, reality i guess to call it uh but i have a few years of experience to back that up and i've never seen anything to contradict it so shrug moving on um Technology is the same thing, though. Technology is literally power, because power is best defined as the ability to do, and technology is a tool which allows you to do. So, you know, quick quo pro here. But even ignoring that, what you're saying is that you feel that technology had to be removed, because otherwise the people in this peaceful, loving, wonderful, good village would turn into horrible, nightmarish monsters who would kill everything around them. In other words, you freely admit, by your own argument, Baku, that you are all bastards, and the only way to keep you in check is to prevent you from doing anything horrible. Notice they have a no-weapons policy, by the way, in a village that doesn't get outsiders or visitors. You kind of see how this lines up here, don't you? Then we add another interesting facet to this. Some of the children, and by some of, I mean at least a few hundred... Uh, based on evidence we, we hear throughout the movie, decided they wanted to embrace the old ways, try to use technology. The book goes a lot more into this. I'm just mentioning this as an aside to convince you to read the book. The book talks about how Golna and all of them were talking about using technology and as a, as a force of good. And, and they, their, whole, their whole, you know, they didn't actually stage an insurrection. It was more like they were trying to show that technology could help improve our lives and make things better and blah, blah, blah. And as a result, uh, they were, of course, banished for that. And they went off to call themselves the Sona and engaged in drug trafficking and slavery. Horrible, horrible things. They became thugs and bandits. So I guess the Baku were right. If they have the technology to be evil, they will be evil. So that means they're all evil bastards. So your argument to me is that you're an evil bastard, and the only way to prevent you from being an evil bastard is to lock you in a cell where all you can do is grow crops and weave things and make baskets. Am I understanding this correctly? Is this a penal colony and nobody told me? 
All of this is indicative of the lack of thought that was put into the so-called setup of the situation, the whole paradise thing. It also is indicative of the fact that this final draft of the script was kind of rushed. If you're paying attention to uh, earlier when I was talking about the original draft of the scripts, the Baku and paradise were not an aspect of any of them. They had nothing to do with that. The Fountain of Youth became an aspect uh, in, in, in one of the later scripts, but it was not until the final script that all of a sudden the Baku came into being. And it really shows how little thought was put into constructing them, because I've just spent a few minutes di diverging how incredibly nonsensical and stupid overall their, their construction is. Fun fact. Let, let's, let's add one other little niggle to this. this. Throughout this movie, at no point in time is the, is the plight of the Sona explained to the Baku. Now, if you don't know what I mean, the Sona are also, are, you know, incapable of breeding, right? Like I said, that was in the in script. It was just a cut line. I think it deserves to be considered part of canon. So the Sona cannot reproduce. So they are a dying race. And the, a lot of them are so old and so decrepit. Remember, some of these people are in the century range here. Uh, century plus range, excuse me. That they are literally dying out, and even if they came back to live on the planet, they'd probably still die anyways, because they are just that far gone. Okay. Um, so, why not have the Baku be approached with the plight of the Sona? Well, the answer is obvious. There are only two possible answers to that question. Like, let's say the Sona, or excuse me, the, I keep getting the names screwed up. Let's say that the plight of the Sona was given to the Baku, and the Baku are like, oh, so they're all going to die if we don't move. Okay. Um, so we'll move. I, I mean, <laughs> you get the problem here. There's only two answers to that. Yes or no. They agree to move. The planet is harvested. The Baku's lives are saved. Uh, the Sona's lives are saved. Um, and Based and, and see, here's the thing. I already mentioned how the Sona probably wouldn't share it, but that probably wouldn't share it wouldn't be mentioned to the Baku. So what the Baku understand is this new life-saving medicine will be shared with all these people across the entire Federation and save the lives of their children and probably save their lives too, long enough so that they can get back and relive on the planet back when it's habitable again. That sounds like a win-win for everyone, really. Well, what's the alternative to that? Well, they could say no, which makes them uh, the villains basically. I know, I know. Us or them is, is, is not exactly a good versus evil argument, but saying I want my children to die instead of me, most people would agree is pretty screwed up. So that's why it's never actually approached in the entire movie, because the only possible situation is the end of the movie, if they say yes, or the Baku or the bad guys, which, as we have already established, basically seems to be true. One other thing I want to talk about, I mentioned Visayan LaSalle earlier. I really wish more thought had been gone into this movie and more Star Trek had happened after this movie. And if you don't understand what I mean, let me put it this way. There are things I like to call settings changers. Things that completely alter how a setting works forever. And I do mean forever. Like, to such an extent that you could see the ripples of it affecting everything and every story that ever happens from this point on, to some extent or another, throughout the course of the setting. Uh, like magic blood, just to name an example off the top of my head. But a place that is literally the fountain of youth strikes me as a bit of a setting changer. Now I know what you're saying. Well, they keep the knowledge of this place quiet. Uh-huh. 
How long do you think it's going to take? I mean, I mean, this, this is the same Starfleet that couldn't keep Genesis out of the hands of a random Klingon for longer than a mm, couple days, weeks, something like that. <laughs> so you're going to tell me that the entirety of the Federation is going to keep quiet the knowledge of the Eternal Youth Planet forever. This is a setting changer, and it's never explored or expanded on again. It, the Briar Patch is actually in STO, uh, and I don't recall any actual missions that go there or expand upon that, but, I mean, for God's sakes, and, and again, and this is that poorly thought out thing, you introduce something that could fundamentally change your whole setting, but then you never do anything with it. Why? Why not expand on it? Why not use this to fundamentally change the setting like it should? Why not shift the status quo a bit? Why not make this the one thing that changes the war against the Dominion in favor of the Federation. Can you imagine the impact they would have had if Star Trek Insurrection had such an impact on Deep Space Nine? Nowadays, that's the kind of thing we can accept because Marvel's doing it with the MCU. But back then, back when this movie came out, back when DS9 was live, that thing was unheard of. And yet it would have had such a great impact. And all of those fans of DS9, myself included, would have been like, oh, yes, you know, now we have something. Now we can push forward with this. And it's not like it's a win button. It's just something that is going to help the Federation. It is a boon to their side in the war. And we also understand that this boon is going to have very serious long-term consequences. What do you do with a population that lives an exceedingly long period of time and yet continues to procreate at the same rate? You remember all the way back in Star Trek II, one of the concerns that Marcus, Carol Marcus brought up was overpopulation and that was back in that era think about how bad it would be if everyone lived to be 700 imagine how it would be to have a storyline all about limited parenting or whatever it's called in other words you are, you are allowed a certain number of children per period of time you know overpopulation is a real problem we face that in real life in some parts of the world for god's sakes God, such a waste. This whole movie reminds me of Voyager in so many ways. <sighs> Let's move on. Um, so I do like... Um, I do like the scene with Geordi seeing the sunrise. Uh, LeVar Burton managed to get across the wonder of the scene perfectly and brilliantly. And he does a good job with it. LeVar, I, I have nothing but praise for LeVar Burton. The man has some really good stuff. Um... But I like that especially because it harkens back all the way back to season one of TNG. One of the first things that Jordy discusses with regards to his blindness is that he's never seen a sunrise. And how much he wants to. I believe that was actually mentioned in The Naked Now. I could be wrong. But I know it was season one regardless. I like that tie-in. And I like the fact that after all these years, even though the effect is temporary, Jordy finally got to see a sunrise. That made me smile. And I'll admit it. Now, I've already actually outlined the, the big plot hole problem. I have a list here. It's just saying the two big plot holes. So this is a blood feud, okay, between the Bo uh, Baku and the Sona. Blood feuds tend to be dirty and pretty messy and bad. <laughs> um, and as I mentioned, no matter who wins, the other side is probably going to be extinct as a result of it. But... Picard makes this big speech to Admiral Dougherty, the Section 31 agent, <laughs> about how forced relocation is wrong. 
As I said, I don't want to talk about that other than, you know, forced relocation. Of I think we can agree with that. Cold calculus says 600 people is a drop in the bucket for the good of all. Reality, ethics, and morality say, you know, those are people, not figures, not numbers. But the problem is what Picard does bothers the crap out of me. Picard sees a situation in which... Let me lay, lay this out. Picard sees a situation in which there are people who are being forced to relocate for the good of others, at least ostensibly, in order to help preserve peace and maintain the stability of the Federation. And in response, he uh, finds out that certain people amongst those you know, being relocated refuse violently to allow this and rebel against Starfleet, and therefore he chooses naturally to fight against them, to be on the side of the people who are doing the forced relocation, to the point where he will actually send his own agents to infiltrate them and bring about their downfall. I know the Star Trek fans amongst you know what I'm talking about. Picard was a very staunch anti-Maquis. Even Sisko, who was actually very sympathetic to the Maquis, was still anti-Maquis to some extent or another. But Picard... Yeah, no... So, what's different about the Maquis compared to what he does in this movie? Nothing. There's absolutely no difference between the Maquis situation and the situation of the Baku. It actually kind of is so much of a one-to-one -one parallel that I went digging on a few interviews about Pillar, and he basically admitted that he borrowed from the Maquis situation, which he helped write, by the way. In fact, he wrote the episodes, the Maquis, to give an idea of that, um, in order to create this dilemma, the insurrection in the final draft. But again, Picard is the one who initiates the, this new Maquis, this, this particular brand of them, with the Baku. What changed his mind? Now, I know what you're going to say. Oh, well, it's because he has his love interest. What's her face? That is a valid point. And yet, everyone on the upper staff, and I mean everyone, agrees with him. Even Data agrees with him on this one. That brings me to another point. Uh, two points, actually. But I want to talk about the data thing first, because it irritates me whenever a show or movie or book or game or anything looks at the audience and says, this is what's right and this is what's wrong. That irritates me. Let me decide for myself. I'm going to anyways. If you tell me A is wrong or A is right, I'm more likely to disagree with you on the fundamental fact that you're telling me it as if it was a fundamental fact of existence when such things don't actually exist. They're, they're, you know... <laughs> There's a, such a thing as perspective and opinion and, and whatnot, and interpretation. But I love that. Data goes out of his way to say that with carefully calculated subroutines, and remember, no emotion chip, they go out of their way to show that. So Data, with all his logic, says this is the correct action. And we are supposed to just accept that. Whether we agree with it or not. I'm not saying I do agree with it or disagree with it. I'm just saying that that pisses me off. But that brings me to the second point. Why does the entire crew agree with him on this? Can you really imagine Worf agreeing with this? Or Riker? Riker, if I can be so bold, and his, big, his biggest character uh, point as far as him being the commander is that he is the commander. He is far more of a tactical and military individual than Picard has ever been. He has a fatherly approach to things, yes, but he has never hesitated, even a second, to order people to their deaths if he feels it is going to serve the greater tactical situation. I point to Best of Both Worlds again 
for several examples of this willingness to sacrifice Picard and the entire crew of the Enterprise, respectively. Why would Riker, of all people, and Worf, admittedly both of them, I could see, just you know, be the kind of people who would look at the situation and not think, well, maybe, you know, well, I can explain to you exactly why everyone agrees with this. Because of the fake dilemma. See, I mentioned it's fake because it's like Pillar himself had to have known it was a fake dilemma. I mean, there's no way the man is that stupid, right? So he could not have a situation in which... Let me, let me take a step back. I want you to picture something. I want you to picture that half the crew agree with Picard. We cannot relocate the Baku. And half the crew agree with Admiral Dougherty. The long-term benefits are simply too great to be ignored. So the crew ends up fighting themselves. An insurrection. A great character-driven piece where we get to see these characters fighting against people they love and know. The family turned in on itself. Now that has great story potential. Especially when the reveal comes that the Sona had no intention of sharing the technology, meaning the people who had sided with Dougherty realized they have been fighting for nothing. That they have been willing to hurt and injure, and in some cases kill, for a lie. Imagine what kind of character potential that has. But the problem's obvious with that setup. It's very dark. Riker versus Picard. Worf, you know, versus versus Jordy. It, it's a very dark way to approach the story. And remember, it was dictated to Pillar that he has to do something lighthearted and fun. So he doesn't do that. Instead, he just has everyone fundamentally agree this is right. Because the very concept of this is right is the Roddenberry box, isn't it? I'm not there yet. But just keep this point in the back of your mind, okay? Here's a fun fact. The Baku... Or, excuse me, the Sona. I keep getting their names mixed up. The Sona, who were exiled to die and rot, um, are people who conquered two entire species and built enough ships to be considered worth note notice in the Dominion War. For reference, the, so uh, the Sona are actually referenced over on Deep Space Nine as being Dominion allies, by the way. Um, so, yeah. Um, how did they manage that? Well, you might say with technology, you know, superior technology, you can accomplish great many things. While that is true, I'm not actually bringing it up to emphasize the Sona's lack of ethics or morals, which I've already covered, or their superior technology, which I've already covered. Instead, I'm going to mention this. It is my opinion that the number of the Sona that were ex uh, exiled is very large, several, several hundred. Not enough to sustain a population, but enough to actually maintain order amongst a slave race, because technology alone is not going to do that. That's not how that works. You need to have some kind of numbers to literally use your technology to keep them in track. You can't just have a ship that's crewed entirely by slaves and have one Sona aboard. That's going to end very badly. So I just mentioned this to really emphasize just how many children the Baku sent out to die. Just a fun little fact there. Uh, I want to give praise to the visual effects of this movie. Uh, some, in some cases, the this it's kind of obvious. Most notably, uh, when they're going through the... Uh, Donner Pass area with the you know, little flying tag and stuff. But there's one scene in especially, especially that I feel really deserves uh, props, and that's the scene where there's a bunch of crowd of people running, and then a chunk of that crowd is beamed away, and the rest keep running as if nothing happened. It's a very smooth effect. If you watch it, you know, you can actually see where they did it. But nevertheless, great props for that. They did some great stuff with the space battles and whatnot, too. So I just wanted to give general props to the visual effects department. Um... 
<laughs> so I have a note here. I'm just going to read my note word for word, okay? I, I mentioned, you know, Admiral originally section 31. I already mentioned that. It'll explain a lot. I already mentioned that. And so here's Dougherty's choice. The death of a Starfleet crew versus new health technology for the entire Federation. Cold calculus comes into play here, and he makes the choice, as a Section 31 agent would. But again, and again, reading, my line, reading myself word for word here, again, it is a false dilemma that relies on slavers and drug dealers to keep their word. People who are basically one step in with the Dominion, and as we find out later, formally ally with the Dominion. Why is it even in here? So, okay, some people uh, are probably wondering, why haven't I talked about Data or the Kid at all yet? I have nothing to talk about with them. Data is so irrelevant to this story, other than the initial point of starting the story going, that you could have written him out and it would have had basically no change in the story, in my opinion. And the kid... We've seen this story before. Human... Uh, you know, the fish out of water thing with Data is such an old story that it's been done since season one of TNG, for God's sakes. So I just, I have nothing to add. It's there and, and it wastes time. Moving on. Ah, yes. Okay. <laughs> this is another thing I want you to keep in the back of your mind for a box. So there's a weird line that uh, Beverly says to Troy. Troy says, you notice your boobs starting to firm up because they're being de-aged. They're younger, right? Okay, that makes sense. Uh, and Beverly says, and I quote, not that we care about such things in this day and age. What? Now, I'm sorry, I had to actually pause the movie because of how much that line just it hit the side of my thoughts like a giant bell right next to my ear. What? This is pretentiousness in a nutshell, okay? When you say something like that, what you are saying to every woman out there who wants to have nice-looking breasts or wants them to be firmed up, that you are wrong. They're telling you that having a concern for your physical appearance or your physical level of beauty, or what's the uh, bodily image, that's the other word, your bodily image is wrong. I mean, the enlightened and intelligent federation has no care for such things. That's the first problem with that. Now, the second problem with that is that's obviously completely freaking wrong, because you, you, you can't honestly tell me that out of the whole of the federation, even amongst just humans, that there's no women out there, anywhere, who actually don't, who, who, who don't care, uh, who, who have a care for the appearance of their mammary glands. You cannot tell me that. You cannot tell me that there's not at least one person out there who's like, you know, I mean, I'm not trying, I'm trying really hard to dance around this topic because we're talking about boobs here, for God's sakes, but there are exercises that I know women in real life who do specifically in order to tighten up the muscles around here and here because it helps these things to be pulled up and prevent sag, right? There's a reason you wear a frickin' bra, right? The whole purpose of a bra is to prevent sagging. That's actually its intent. For those of you not aware of that, I mean, obviously it can serve other purposes as well, but that's the core intent of a bra, to keep them maintained and, and uplifted and prevent sagging. I mean, not that we care about this kind of thing in this day and age. What the crap? But I want you to keep this in the back of your mind because it's another one of those Roddenberry box things. So then we move on to something that I just have to comment on because it amuses me. The good guys are using phaser rifles and you know launchers and blasters and big old cannons and all that stuff. And the bad guys are using tiny little drones that tag people to beam them away safely. Moving on. 
So then there's the Enterprise D's, excuse me, the Enterprise E's fight against the the Sona. Okay, that's cool. Uh, I actually like that fight, believe it or not, except for two problems. One, this is another situation in which Pillar, it feels like Pillar was trying to set up a situation and didn't know how to. If the Enterprise E had turned around and fight fought the superior Sona ships basically right off the bat, I think it would have had a much better chance of success. This is a sovereign class battle cruiser, for God's sakes. It is a top of the. Actually, I would argue this is this is defined as a battleship, although that's debatable. The point being, this is a ship that could probably, even against these superior foes, do some real damage, and probably just by basic tactics and maneuvering, actually defeat the two superior vessels. That's just my opinion on the matter. But no, instead, the this the sovereign, that is to say, the the Enterprise, goes out of its way to flee for quite some time. What is implied to be about twenty minutes in character, you know, in lore while getting hammered the entire time, without actually fighting back. And the only reason to do so is set up a situation so they have to turn around and fight. So that way there's no moral ambiguity when they turn and fight on the enemies, right? And that's why it was set up that way. So the inevitable victory would be victory against people who are obviously evil, rather than having any moral ambiguity to the situation. But despite my aggravation with that, and the frickin' joystick... Why is it a joystick? And, and I'm sorry, I know this sounds really nitpicky, but first of all, why a joystick? We have seen in real life, actually, that a joystick can be an effective way to pilot a craft. Okay, I'm with that. That's your excuse. I'm with it. And they're doing it for joke factor. Okay, I'll admit I laughed more than a few times when I saw this, including this time. The thing that bothers me is they call it manual control. And again, I know this sounds really nitpicky, and I'm sorry. But manual control doesn't exist on a ship like this. Manual control means exactly what it sounds like. You control the ship manually. Now, on a plane, that means you're literally trying to lift uh, the rudders or the things I don't know the names of with literal force of physical. You, you're, the thing you're pulling is directly attached to them, and you pull it, and that manually lifts it or, or lowers it, right? That's manual control. Um, if you're in a steer and you've lost uh, power steering and you start turning the wheel, and, and anybody who's driven a car who's lost power steering, I've done this twice in my life, you're literally manually turning the tires, and it's actually insane to do, right? That's manual control. This is a joystick. That's not manual control. In fact, this is what bugs me about it. It's there for no reason. It's literally the exact same thing as if they were doing the thing. Because we've seen them pull off insane and ridiculous maneuvers across all of Star Trek with just a few button presses, right? What's the difference between the button presses and this? Well, there is no difference, is the point. It's the exact same thing. I uh, have nothing else to add to that. Except one thing. Uh, two things I do like about the Enterprise thing. First of all, this is another example of Pillar using Technobabble in a good way. We've got some gaseous, extremely volatile gases in the nebula. Well, that's kind of weird, uh, especially since those volatile gases are apparently more powerful than antimatter weapons, but whatever. Let's just go with it. So they're more powerful. Okay, I can at least accept that. That at least makes sense in my brain in its own way. Um... So, in order to fight against the superior foe, they decide to use the situation and the technobabble in a way that outthinks them. Use their own unstable, not really functional weapons against them. Yeah, because remember, the main reason the Sona's weapons are stronger is because they're weird and, and distended and basically uh, unstable. I, I, I was trying to think of another word, but I can't go. They're unstable. They're not weapons that you should use reliably. Whereas the Enterprise's weapons are weaker, but much more reliable. Make sense? 
So using that against them makes perfect sense. And again, it's a way to think your way out of the situation. I also really love the conversation between Riker and Jordy. You know, if we check the core, will it fix thing? And Jordy's like, maybe. That's your expert opinion? And Jordy's wonderful speech. Well, yeah, it may or it may not. Uh, subspace weapons are, are unstable. That's why they were banned. <laughs> I love that line. But more than that, I love the fact that he ejects the core even before giving the order for it. It very much shows the connection that this, this crew has, that whole family element I talked about earlier, that Jordy would know this is the right thing to do, regardless of whether I get the order, I'm going to do it, because I know the order's going to come, because Riker's going to know that based on my, you know, blah, blah, blah. The cohesion thing. I like that. That's all. Um, should I bother to mention the fact that the Enterprise E ejects its warp core? They might be, well, why should that be worth mentioning? They're in for a really, really, really long trip back without a warp core. I mean, now, logically, you could say, well, the Enterprise-E can get out of the Briar Patch, which will take a while without warp or anything like that. And the, Although I guess they can't travel at warp in the Briar Patch, so whatever. It'll take them a few days to get out. And then they'll have to send a distress signal saying, hey, we have no warp core help. Okay, I'm with that. Um, how much help do you think they can give to that ship, given the war that's going on right now? I, I'm just picturing the Enterprise E being stuck out there for a really long time. Is is all I'm trying to get at. Moving on. Uh, and then there's and then there's a scene in the cave where Picard and Random Woman get stuck, and Random Woman's dying, and Picard learns how to slow time. I didn't even mention the earlier slow time thing because it's it's <laughs> it's it's one of two things. It's about perception which is what's implied by the movie, or it's magic, which is what actually makes more sense to me. Now, granted, I'm the kind of person who, you know, tends to mix my fantasy and sci fiction, science fiction all over the place. My own setting mixes the two fluidly and to the point where the two are basically uh, the same thing in many cases. So, they slow time. Okay. And then he learns how to slow time to save her life. Should I bother to explain why that doesn't make sense? But more than the not making sense, it bothers me because it's another scene that has no point or purpose to it. Okay, Picard learns how to slow time. That's great. Um, does that have any impact or per impact personality on him at all? I mean, does that do anything? Does that do anything for her? Does that do anything for the setting? Does that do anything for the theme? Is, is anything significant about this whatsoever? If it's And by the way, this is why I mentioned the magic thing making more sense, because if it's about perception... Yeah, I guess it could, okay. In all honesty, I could see it being argued that her, by her perception with slime being slowed, her body could then somehow be able to perceive itself as, as withstanding longer than it should be able to, whatever. I just, I mentioned this though because that scene would have had so much more impact if it had been Beverly. Now, I will say that no, acknowledging that that exact problem has already actually existed in the episode, uh, The Arsenal of Freedom way back in episode uh, season one of TNG, where Beverly was trapped and injured, and yeah, you get the point. Um, but I think that would have been worked a lot better and had more impact if it had been her and Picard, who has just finally now, finally admitted and recently opened up and been been willing to, to open the floodgate of how he'd felt about her for so long, and her in return, and the two of them have finally connected, and there's going to be this great, wonderful future ahead of them, and she is injured. That would have... I, I feel like they would have been done much more with the character elements of, no, you, you, you can't leave. We just started. We just started this. There's so much more that has to come from this. Now, here's where I'm going to say something really controversial. I think Crusher should have died in that scene. 
That's how you do a character death, in my opinion. Remember, replace all the scenes with Random Woman with Beverly Crusher. And again, really let the characters, really let the actors show off their chops. They have both, both Beverly Crusher and Picard are well known for their extreme self-discipline and their their ability to be self-controlled. And now for the first time in a ridiculously long period of time, at least, you know, 10 years based on when uh, Jack died, the two of them are finally allowing themselves to admit that it's okay, that they don't have to feel guilty about loving each other, that they don't have to feel guilty about how they care about each other, that the fact that they have been friends a lot longer than they've had romantic feelings for each other. So they've got these establishments for a real relationship, not just a fling. This is something that could last a long time and make the two of them very happy for the rest of their lives. And really just showing that unadulterated joy. And then have her die. And have her die because they don't have the technology to save her that they could have gotten if they'd let them take the rings. Don't have to say that out loud. Let it sit in the back of the audience's mind. Of course, that'd be pretty dark, I'll admit that. One thought I kept having. It is very Federation-y of Admiral Dougherty to assume that while he is the only Federation personnel on a ship, uh, a fleet, really, of slavers and drug dealers and thugs, that he actually has any real power there. Even when I saw this movie for the very first time, I kept thinking he was an idiot because he kept assuming that if he gives an order, it'll be followed, or if he tells them something, it will happen. How very Federation of him when he has no real power to assume that the fictional power he has is applied as real when amongst enemies. It doesn't actually work that way. And then he dies horribly. <clears throat> Spoiler alert. So Golna is an interesting character. Now, I admittedly am, am a little bit biased towards him because the book, a lot of the book is actually written from his perspective in, in the book Insurrection. But I noticed even in the movie... Basically, every scene he is in, they go out of their way to show where his character is going. He does have a little bit of a character arc. It's a tiny one. It's basically just a redemption story, a classic redemption story. But it does... Every scene he's in, they, they move it forward a step. And I like that. I like the fact that they bothered to show the work and Pillar built up to his redemption rather than just having him randomly turn because Picard gives the Picard speech. Instead, he's been hesitant since, the, since day one. He's probably the one who convinced Ruafu... Well, in the books we know this, but even in the movies I could speculate he's probably the one who quits Rafu to move them off-planet, to work with Starfleet rather than to just do it, right? Then I digress. Um, I also like the usage of the holodeck. This is the second-to-last usage of Technobabble for good points. Again, props to Michael Piller. Um, I, I don't feel like the need to explain this. I just feel like the use of the ship and distracting them in this way is a good way to use Technobabble to actually outthink your opponents and outthink your situation. So, props there. Then Warp is a badass. And then we have the final battle, which is actually kind of... Eh. But, um... This is the final... I've only got three notes left. This is the final good solution thing that Pillar keeps doing. You've got the Enterprise E. They're damaged. They're outgunned. They cannot destroy the enemy because there are innocents on that ship. And so what do you do? You outthink your opponent. I would argue there's basically no Technobabble in this final solution. You could argue this. But life support isn't Technobabble. What do they do? Well, they go after the ship and literally go at ramming speed right at them. So they could dodge at the last second and get a point-blank shot at their life support and at their engines. 
that's outthinking your enemy. And it and of course that kind of a solution should and would work, especially since the enemy crew is not exactly captained by anybody with any real experience, because again, they've got the, the, the Z-list uh, people in charge. It also leads to my absolute favorite line in this whole movie. It's actually two lines. The, the Sona captain, nameless guy, turns and he's like, as, and we see on the view screen as the Enterprise is just getting closer and closer. And he turns like, he wouldn't. And then Worf just sits there and says with total sincerity, yes, he would. I love that line. When my sister and I were watching this last year, we both erupted in just amused, la cackling laughter. Yes, that's awesome. Uh, probably my favorite scene in the whole movie, in all honesty. And then they win, blah, 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 the end. The movie leaves a logistical logical issue unaddressed. What do you do with the Sona? There's really only two options, because you can't just let them go. Even though obviously there are other Sona, because those other Sona are then mentioned after this part, you know, as part of the Dominion War, but I digress. The Sona that you have here, the ones on the two ships, what do you do with them? Well, you can imprison them, or you can leave them on the planet, which is tantamount to imprisonment. Um... Both of those solutions are kind of messed when you really think about it. So let's think about this. You can imprison them knowing that they have only a few years of life left to them. So enjoy the last few years of your life in prison. Now, you could argue that they kind of have that coming, but you are executing them, basically. You are saying the rest of your life is being taken from you. You might as well just shoot them. It would be more merciful at that point to do that. And I'm being blunt here. Or you could leave them on the planet. Well... That would probably work for some of them, but as we've already established, plenty of the Sona will not survive even if left on the planet. That was They actually bothered to mention that early on as one of the, the ways to set up the fake dilemma. So, yeah, that means that you get to stay on the planet and enjoy the rest of your life, admittedly, and then die slowly and horribly around your loved ones who get to watch their children die in front of them. You ever heard of the quote, no parent should have to outlive their child? There's no happy ending here, is what I'm trying to say. The latter might be more merciful, but it, it can, again, be debated if they deserve that. These are horrible people. Again, slavers, in addition to the other you know, lesser crimes they have. Whatever, they never answer that question because they can't. Because that's a very dark topic that the movie set up, and the whole point is to stay in the box. And that brings me to that point. This is a happy, pat ending, in a nutshell, straight out of a television episode. Doesn't actually discuss any of the ramifications of what's happened. You know, the, 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 the revelation of the fountain doesn't matter. The fact that the sonar are going to die doesn't matter. The implications, you know, none of that matters. We got to have our happy ending because we got to stay in the box. The problem with the Roddenberry box, in a nutshell is that it, by definition, determines that the writer and viewer both don't think. That's the real problem. It's application. I liken the Roddenberry box to the Prime Directive. The Prime Directive is the kind of thing that I can at least get behind in theory, but how you apply it, how you put it forward into practice, is what actually matters. And... Well, Lord knows the Prime Directive is one of those things that tends to be one of the more hot-button topics among Star Trek fans, so I don't want to get too much into that kind of a debate here. Suffice it to say, in my opinion, across all of Star Trek, sometimes it's applied well, and sometimes it's not. Moving on. But I mention that because it's the application that matters. So as I've said before, 
I'm one of those people who thinks that creative writing can be wonderfully expressed if you're artificially limited. When I was actually teaching creative writing, that's one of the things I do. I, was, I want you to write this kind of a story. Not any kind of a story. I want you to write a story. It has to include ABC. It has to be a, a, take place on location A. You know, you give them limits. You give them restrictions. But that kind of thing always engenders creativity within the writing mind, right? The, prob the difference between that kind of a limitation and the box is its application and nothing more. The box is artificial limitations on its writing, but the box is saying, I have the final say in what can happen. And that is actually what it is. The Roddenberry box is literally just Gene Roddenberry had final control over TNG. And he would shut down, and we'll talk about this when we get to TNG, he would and did shut down a lot of things because he felt they went outside the box. I don't think Roddenberry even came up with the term the box. I know Michael Piller has talked about the Roddenberry box word for word, you know, used that exact phrase. And I know Rick Berman has as well. I don't know who else. I'll have to look into it when I get to TNG. But the point being, the difference there is I am telling you what I consider acceptable rather than, I want you to make a story with A, B, and C. You see the difference in the application there. And like I said, the Roddenberry box, by definition, requires you to think less rather than think more. The more you think about the stories that are restricted within that box, that, that, that are restricted because they were considered unacceptable to the person in charge, the more you realize that there are flaws in the construction of the plot flaws in the construction of the setting, that certain things don't actually make sense when they're actually applied. The more you think about it, the worse it gets. I don't know if I'm explaining myself properly here, because this is a very gray area and very difficult to define, because the whole point is the lack of definitions. But I think, personally, that that really emphasizes why Insurrection, for me, is only barely an enjoyable film. Because the more I thought about it, the less I liked it. And in my personal opinion, if I am required to think less about something, to enjoy it, then that is a flawed piece, and one that I should not consider any better than it actually is. Next week, <laughs> well, we'll get there. <laughs>